Welcome to the OTs Gone Rogue podcast, where we share real stories about real OTs who are choosing to think outside the box and do things differently. I'm your host, Melissa Lapointe. Over the years, I've had the pleasure of connecting with the most remarkable therapists who are finding their way as thought leaders, change makers, and heart-led entrepreneurs. They've helped to inspire me to think big and dig deep in my own healing journey. And it's now time to bring these conversations to a bigger stage. Together, we're going to share stories about overcoming adversity, finding our people, and taking the road less traveled, even when it feels messy and uncomfortable. Okay, are you ready to join us? This is the OT's Gone Rogue podcast. Hello, my rogue friends. Melissa LaPointe here, and welcome to another episode of the OT's Gone Rogue podcast. Recording today's episode brought up some memories, but it was so awesome to connect with a like-minded mama because we start this interview by talking all about sleep. Now, you may have heard me reference this in the past, but my transition into motherhood involved quite a few hiccups in the sleep department, to put it mildly, which gave me the opportunity to experience firsthand the sleep industry and all the crap that came with it. My guest today is Heather Boyd, an OT based out of Ontario, Canada. She's doing some really cool things as a private practitioner with a strong background in pediatrics and infant sleep. One of the services that she offers is holistic attachment-based OT for families navigating sleep development and parenting in the early years. Oh, how I wish I had a Heather in my life seven and a half years ago. In addition to her sleep consulting services, Heather's doing some really awesome things in the area of environmental health coaching. And of course, we talk about the trials and tribulations that come with trailblazing in a new area of practice for OTs. Want to know more? All right, tune in and let's roll out this interview. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the OT's Gone Rogue podcast. And Heather, welcome. You are my first guest where we are doing a deeper dive into some things that I've never talked about. And I'm really excited for us to peel back a layer on your unique niche. So how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to talk about this too, Melissa. Oh my goodness. So before we go down the road less traveled, let's talk about something I'm very passionate about, sleep consulting. So Mm -hmm. we'll start there, but first let's tell people where you are geographically and how long you've been practicing as an OT. Okay. I am in Niagara, Ontario, and I've been an OT for... um, over 20 years now, but I've only been working privately over the past three. Okay. And in terms of your private practice, so it's the chicken or the egg, did sleep consulting (laughs) drive you towards a private practice or were you a private practice owner and recognized there was a gap in terms of the sleep industry? Private practice came first, although I had no idea what I was doing when I started. I had just given birth to our first, or sorry, third baby boy, and I decided that staying home and homeschooling 
and running a private practice was going to be a better fit for us. So I thought I'll just open up my doors and clients will flood in, but I had no idea what I'd be focusing on until a light bulb finally went off. And I thought, what's the biggest challenge that I had as a new mom? It was sleep. I thought, of course, everyone needs to understand what sleep is all about and needs support around what is normal for baby sleep. And so it was definitely the private practice first was spinning my wheels until I realized sleep was a really important piece for parenthood. Okay. And before the sleep piece came into play, what were the kinds of services you were offering? So before you niched down? I had about 20 years experience in infant development. Um, well, I guess fewer than 20 years at that point in time. And so I thought, well, I'll just offer infant development and, you know, share my wisdom and my expertise and my training. Um, but it, it didn't start out very smooth because infant development services typically are covered by the province. And so there wasn't a clear route to go for that, at least not initially. So I kind of took on some contracts working for Canchild in Ontario, doing some work around family-centered practice um, that came out of my master's uh, degree. And uh, it just took a while to niche down to the sleep piece. And once it did, uh, that opened up more opportunities to go back full circle and start focusing on the broader infant development piece at that point. Neat. And I didn't realize, so I knew you were homeschooling because of the pandemic, but you were homeschooling before the pandemic. Yes, we're long haul homeschoolers. We ebb and flow. We we do what's going to fit right at a particular time for our family. But yeah, we've been doing this for a while, the homeschooling thing. Okay. And I love how <laughs> you're like, well, I'm going to have three kids and homeschool and start a private practice because that's going to be the easiest thing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, how naive I was, but easiest, maybe not. It certainly is easier to show up at work and get a steady paycheck, but rewarding um, is definitely much more rewarding. Now, let's circle back to something you had said um, in terms of sleep. It was something that you had struggled with. So Ooh. did you struggle with it or did one of your little ones struggle with it or did all three of your little ones struggle with it or were you simply not aware of what was considered normal? Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit more about your sleep story. Yes, I had, you know, I, I had years of experience with infant development and sleep was a tiny little part of that. And one that I didn't understand very well when parents came in to say how tired they were, because I don't think you can understand until you are a parent just how exhausting it is. And when our first was born, sleep was not just exhausting, but impossible. And by that point, I knew um, or I had an understanding and had worked um, through an attachment theory lens for many years in my, in my work. And so I understood the importance of responsive parenting and meeting the need, the emotional need um, and the attachment need. But what I didn't know is how to rule out underlying health issues that were impacting sleep. Um, reflux uh, was at that point in time, the conventional wisdom was it is a laundry problem, not a medical problem or spitting up is a laundry problem. And so my OT mind and my professional training kind of got in the way of my mothering instinct that something was really getting in the way of sleep. So it was a hard go and a hard go that was made even more um, clear when our second was born also had reflux, but we identified it right off the bat. And he was like, 
he was the textbook sleeper that must have read the books, um, which made me realize just how much, um, how different sleep can be between children and what an impact that reflex or any other underlying health condition can have on sleep. So we, we finally got through the gauntlet of, of fixing underlying sleep. Um, but through that, I, I was challenged with trying to reach out to someone that could support us around sleep and that wanted to look at whether there were underlying issues. And there just wasn't anyone out there that was meeting that need to say, yes, this is normal, but this other piece may not be. Let's roll that out and dig deep into whether we can resolve that so that sleep at least can develop and unfold the way it's supposed to. Mm. So when you say you couldn't find anyone, had you, like, were you interviewing people? Had you gone through any discovery calls? Were you, like, were you successful at all in connecting with people and it just wasn't quite the right fit or you weren't finding the right fit at all? It wasn't quite the right fit because more than anything, what I needed to do or what I was looking for as a mom was to rule out what may be getting in the way that was changeable, but then lots and lots of normalizing around what to expect of baby sleep development. What is what is normal versus what's conventionally thought in terms of when babies should be sleeping through the night, um, when babies should be self-soothing, when babies should be able to fall asleep on their own. And there wasn't at that point anybody that was doing that kind of perspective on sleep. Mm. This really resonates in that. So when my little guy, so my little guy's nine and oh, we should have, we should have been sleep buddies uh, <laughs> because again, you know, pediatric background, a lot of training and attachment, early brain development. And, you know, I remember bringing him to the baby shower. So they had a baby shower for me at the child development center and he was maybe 10 days old and had been passed around, but he was sleeping the whole time. And I could not get him to settle that night. I could not. He was so fussy. And my mom was still with me. She was asking, she's like, what did you do to this child? And I said, nothing out of the usual other than, you know, he was passed around. And she said, I wonder if he's really sensitive. And then we got back into a rhythm and then something happened. There was another event, you know, was, I can't remember if it was a baby shower, a second one, but again, he had been passed around and seemed to tolerate it well, slept through it, you know, what we consider sleep. But then that evening again was so out of sorts. And that's when I really started, it was so much easier to just wear him. Um, you know, it was so much easier. It's so hard to tell people, no, I know my baby seems fine when you're holding him, but I have to deal with it afterwards and he's not fine. So I just started wearing him a lot because it was easier that way. But again, you know, really understanding what was normal. And we did well until the three-month mark. You know, we did fine until the three-month mark in terms of that first round of sleep was getting longer and longer. That first stretch, we were starting to see some semblance of a routine. And then he got his first cold and it was causing quite a bit of anxiety in me at the time. And we regressed. He wasn't sleeping. He wasn't breathing. He had to, you know, he was full-time nursing and we regressed. And then that was it. We never really got back to the three hours because he had been up to about five hour stretches. And then at the three month mark, we regressed to two and a half hours. And then we never got back 
to that until he was almost two. He was 20 months yes. old. Yes. And I think this is one of the biggest myths around sleep development is that somehow it's a straight trajectory with these little blips that are temporary and should only last two weeks. But recently I had um, read a description around sleep being, you know, what if we looked at the first three years as just being one big regression, Mm. one big process to get to that point where sleep is mature enough that we're seeing clear patterns. Of course, there are some babies that are, are doing that much earlier than others, but to give that long, slow timeline of understanding just what neural development is happening and just what um, motor skills are happening that are interrupting immature sleep. Mm-hmm. And if we knew that timeline were longer and we knew and had a better sense of what is normal, um, parents can relax more in the process instead of fighting so hard to make sleep happen when sleeping isn't their job, it's their baby's job. Mm-hmm. And I remember you know, doing so much research in terms of sleep and being very angry as a consumer in terms of what was being pushed on me for normal. And again, having, thank goodness I had my pediatric background. It did help a little bit in that I was able to understand the research and, you know, found James McKenna very early on, found like there were a number of people that I had discovered and I was like, why is no one talking about this? Why aren't we normalizing this? Why does every person I meet ask if I have a good baby that's sleeping through the night? You know, and I would just start looking at them saying, no, I have a really bad baby, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking one of the major concerns that parents that are reaching out to me have is this information overload of they've done the research, they've looked for a sense of what should be happening, and it is so... Um, contrary, everything conflicts everything else. Mm-hmm. We, we certainly are not in a shortage of information, but to find information that's tailored to support each individual baby is really, really tough. Yes. And my first foray into the sleep industry, so I found a sleep consultant and So I'd done quite a bit of research and I remember finding a sleep consultant and I didn't get very far into her discovery call process when I realized she had very little training. I think she had her early childhood education certification and something else and had basically put this label on herself that she was a sleep consultant. And I totally lost faith in that. Like when I did more research on her, I'm like, oh my goodness, no, moving on. And then my mentor at the time, so Kim Barthel was one of my pediatric mentors, and she referred me to a sleep consultant down in the U.S. And two pediatric therapists that she knew of had gone through this sleep consulting agency. So I thought, okay, if Kim's going to give me a name, I'm going to follow up. They sent me a, at this point, I was starting to lose my mind a little bit. uh, And they sent me an intake form that I had to fill out. Now, at this point, I had already, you know, he was six months old and I had already administered a sensory profile. He was coming out sensory sensitive, which, which I had suspected, but that confirmed my suspicions. And they sent me an intake form. And by the time I completed the intake form and sent it back, it was 14 pages. So here I am, you know, I haven't had more than three hours sleep. My husband worked a graveyard shift the whole time. So I was on my own, you know, he would sleep all day. And then I was just left to my own devices all the time. So, and again, you know, I really was losing my mind a little bit. Um, 
and 14 pages this and then the you know just the like the recommendations that they were giving me that were so hard to implement and that weren't taking into account certain pieces of development or certain challenges that we were having um, especially knowing I was on my own all night but then on my own all day oh, it was something else, you know, and it really, yeah, it really motivated. Well, I had a workshop, the science of sleep, you know, that was definitely one of my workshops that I was very passionate about delivering to health professionals. Because if we, you're right, if we can normalize some of this, at least take some of the anxiety off of the parents to let them know their children are healthy. And he was, he was so healthy, all other areas of development, meeting his milestones, but he was, in the ergo carrier and I was swaying pretty much all the time. He was happy. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had him in the ergo and I was swaying and I was nursing, he was happy. You know, those were his forms of regular self-regulation. And but then people would see him in the ergo and oh, you're so lucky, mom. He's such an easy baby. And I would, <laughs> I'm not an aggressive person, but there were times that I wanted to throat punch people. And I thought, yeah, I've been swaying for 11 months now. This is really easy. (laughs) Well, and this is too where, you know, your story just highlights so much of what's in common with the challenges that families have around sleep. Because on one hand, if there is a problem, we want to identify it and rule it out or address it or resolve it. But most of the time, sleep is developing fairly normally within all the variation that, you know, every other skill that babies develop, go through that wide range. Um, But yeah, to normalize it. And the, the other layer of this is it's not just about the baby, because although their needs and, you know, are fundamental, especially in the first year, mom has needs too. And, and needs to find some balance to feel good enough. And part of that comes from knowledge and, and part of it comes from confidence. Um, and part of it comes from yeah, understanding her baby and her baby's sleep needs so that she's working less hard trying to make something happen that's not quite ready to happen yet. And resonating with another, you know, when you had said, I was struggling with sleep, that was my in to say, you know, well, was it you? Was it your little ones? And I remember a friend, very well-intentioned, and he was going on 18 months at this point. So I hadn't had a solid dose of REM sleep and I couldn't remember the last time. So just in this constant haze. And she was very surprised when I had told her how long it had been since I had slept. And she said, oh, I didn't realize you were having problems sleeping. I thought it was just Max. (laughs) (laughs) How do you, you know, and I didn't even know what to say. (laughs) I just said, well, well, because yeah, I mean, it's that that layer of nothing, no skill that a baby is developing, no need that they have is in a microcosm. It's within the context of the whole family, um, which means it includes mom, it includes dad, any other siblings. Um, you add a pandemic on top of it, of course, and you have less support for managing through. And it's, I mean, it's so, it's why it's so important to me to be looking at sleep holistically. And I, I know that word gets overused so much these days. And, and we know as OTs, we come from a holistic profession. Um, but to look at the whole child and the context of that child in their family environment and their physical environment, um, there's so many layers that can be 
pursued to look at where can we make this feel better? Not always getting more sleep right away. If babies are at that stage where they're they're not sleeping as much as we wish they would, is there a way to help this feel better? Now, my question, once you venture down the rabbit hole of sleep consulting, because at one point, so I was working in prenatal, postnatal health, and I was offering mom and baby groups, and I was offering one-off consultations and packages, but where I struggled was in over-connecting. Not over-connecting, but really when people would come to me with sleep struggles, because if you've never, you know, if you're listening to this, I hope you've never been there. But if you have, you know what we're talking about. There is a different level of darkness when you don't sleep for extended. There's a reason why they use lack of sleep as torture. And there's a different level of darkness that you cannot even begin to wrap your mind around. You think you're tired, but long-term sleep deprivation is a whole different scenario. And when I would have other moms or other parents come to me around sleep, it wasn't very healthy for my business because I would over-deliver, I would spend so long with them because I resonated, I empathized so much with what they were going through. So I actually struggled to bring sleep consulting into my business model Mm -hmm. because I was attracting people who were having ongoing issues and I would go down that rabbit hole with them. And then I wouldn't necessarily want to charge them because I had spent 800 hours with them. And, you know, but I had a really hard time setting a healthy boundary for my business in terms of the time and the commitment that I was, um, that I was investing. Yeah. Well, and certainly from, I think homeschooling and having three boys has helped me with those boundaries a bit because there just isn't a lot of wiggle room there. But I think the other aspect that helps is because I have worked in infant development for so long and knowing that it's not just about sleep. When families are working with me over a long period, like six months, we can fold in so much around the things that just make parenting easier. And when it feels easier, it becomes sleep is just one, you know, if you remember that analogy of mental health where the petal or the middle of the flower is you, and then you've got all the other aspects of your life, sleep becomes one petal on a flower that has so many other aspects on it. And it, it allows parents to know that sleep may be the reason that they called me, Sleep is the biggest pain point. It's until I was as tired as I was with my first, I didn't realize how physically painful sleep could be or lack of sleep could be. Um, But to realize that it is one petal on that whole child. And if we're able to fold in motor skills or parenting and gentle discipline, you realize that sleep is transient. Like the sleep development or sleep maturation is a, transient process. It's a developmental stage. And then we can put it into perspective so that it's not swallowing up the whole, especially when we know that mental health and maternal mental health is so important and so um, in need of more support. Um, you know, they're, they're coming to me for sleep, but there is so much wider a view that we can take to just make it make smooth out the edges. And really, you know, it opened my eyes into like when I was practicing at the child development center as an early intervention therapist, you know, I'm not bragging, but I was a strong therapist. I was very good at what I did. I was constantly investing in professional growth opportunities. I really connected with my clients, with my families. And 
after going through my own sleep challenges, I go back and I am appalled at how one-sided we were in terms of working with families around sleep challenges and how often we would really not focus on the mother-child you know, and again, I say the mother child because that is my experience. I was the one home. I was the one breastfeeding. I was, I was it. Um, but knowing, you know, whoever that primary caregiver is, it's not always the mom, but I think we could say primarily it is most mm-hmm. commonly the mom. Um, but how often we would focus on the child. You know, we would do the intake for the child. We would, we would assess the child. And that's not to say we wouldn't have some questions for the parent, um, but oh, to go back in time, you know, and again, know. you know, I, we're the seats. Yeah. Sorry, I think back to the families that I worked with before I had kids and I just think, oh, I am so sorry. My my advice was so naive. Um, I'd have colleagues who had kids that were giving advice that certainly doesn't align with my approach to sleep now. And as someone who didn't even have kids, I was like, yep, they must be right. Um, you've got to cry it out. You've got to shut the door and walk away and not respond. And I think, oh, I got an apology for any parent that had my naive advice back then. Um, but certainly, you know, being a mother and, you know, 95% of the people reaching out to me are moms. I get the occasional dad. But I, you know, I see now how important it is to not just ask, how is your baby sleeping, but how are you feeling? Because that can change whether your baby's sleep is changing or not. Your baby could have a less than ideal night, but if your perspective and your self-care and the support you're getting is high enough, it can actually not feel nearly as bad as a baby who may be sleeping better, but you're struggling so much with trying to make it work. Oh, some of the recommendations. And, Mm. you know, some of the blanket statements that we were giving. Now, again, I was quite involved in delivering professional development opportunities and workshops. So even when I was at the Child Development Center, that was something I had started doing. And some of the blanket statements coming out through Interior Health, for example, um, where, again, I understand that as organizations, they have to do the best that they can. But some of the sleep suggestions were, you know, it's not a one size fits all. And the attitude towards co-sleeping drove me crazy. And it was like the secret society of co-sleepers, health professionals who were co-sleepers. And we didn't talk about it to our colleagues because of the judgment because of you know the conversations that we often were not participating in, but we were aware that was happening during team intakes. Oh, well, they're co-sleeping at this age. The judgment that would come with that. So I remember my physiotherapist friend, um, we were both pro co-sleepers and we just didn't talk about it, but it was what was working for our families and very common, you know, very common. But again, a lot of judgment in this, in what's considered normal sleep for each family. Very much. And that, that reminds me of um, a couple of years ago, I presented a poster at CAOT in Niagara Falls. And at that point, I was still feeling rather tentative about how to navigate bed sharing and co-sleeping in an environment where almost every official agency is officially against it. And so I was having trouble figuring out how to navigate that in a way that was reasonable. 
And so I presented the poster. Um, it was about um, how to assess sleep from a biologically um, from a biological perspective. What are the basic biological needs of a baby for sleep? And so one of the case studies that I included was about bed sharing, or I had a slide about bed sharing. And what was so fascinating was the chat that I had with all the OTs who were also moms who were bed sharing. And even though they were health professionals who could make informed decisions, we were talking about shame and we were talking about anxiety and worry. We were talking about the struggle of doing it differently than conventionally when we're in a field that is um, very, you know, we tend to be very concerned about following the rules, um, very evidence-based, although there's very good evidence around balancing out the risks and the benefits of, of bed sharing. But it was so, it was unexpected to have such a, a deep conversation about the challenges of being a healthcare professional that's bed sharing. And it was absolutely fascinating. Mm, I bet. I bet. These are conversations that I've been part of many times. And full disclosure, I have no problem sharing it. My son was in a crib once in his life. And it was at my sister's house. And it was so funny, his reaction. <laughs> he, he just thought it was fascinating. Like, what are these bars? And what are, you know, when people were like, are you afraid of him falling out? And, you know, we had two beds in the house. And we we were just concerned about quality of sleep. I didn't care whose bed or who was in what bed. One mattress was on the floor. And then we had our bed, which was not on the floor. But he wasn't walking and he would have been crawling, at least scooting. And he learned, he learned very quickly to scoot feet first off of that bed. You know, it. It was a skill that it was a survival skill that he picked on picked up on very quickly. Uh, so there was no falling out of the bed. He would just scooch his little, you know, scooch his legs over the edge, and then down he would go, and off he would. Well, he didn't crawl. He did this funny little, you know, he was a scooter. Yeah, and it's it was just something else. But again, we didn't talk about it. You know, we were very selective on who we talked about it with, just because. We just needed sleep. We didn't need judgment. We didn't need advice. You know, it was not helpful. So I didn't ask for it. And and again, thank goodness I was so confident in my parenting skills and confident in my pediatric skills that if people would have given me well-intentioned passive aggressive advice anyways, I was so able to brush it off. But I know that's mm. not the case for every mom. Yes. Well, and that's where, you know, one of the pleasures that I get out of supporting moms is when they come to me and and it happens more often than I ever would have guessed, they come to me saying, am I damaging my child by responding to them at night? And it, they use that, that language. They literally are concerned about damaging their child's hope for independence, uh, for quality sleep. And I think, okay, there's so much work to do to just have parents arrive in the role of parenting, feeling confident enough that they can put aside the books and look at their baby and let their baby guide the decisions that they make around meeting their needs. And, you know, to, to pull away all those layers of misinformation around what constitutes good quality sleep versus junk sleep, you know, saying that if you're moving in a, in a baby carrier, that it's junk sleep, or if naps are only 20 minutes, that it's not, not enough, or it's not, it's junk sleep. And none of these hold true from baby to baby. 
There may be some babies that need more than 20 minutes, but there are cat nappers there. That's all they need. And to fight against their nature when the baby that is right in front of you only needs a 20 minute nap to feel refreshed and go on with their day. Um, I think, you know, that the misinformation is just such a disservice for for a young parent who is already vulnerable and who is not getting nearly as much of support as they need and then is getting this contradictory advice around what is most important and what's most important is the baby that's in front of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, so true. Why didn't I have a Heather in my life nine years ago? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, I wish, I wish there were someone that had been able to offer that to me. Oh. So Heather, I want to shift gears here for a moment. So now in addition to sleep consulting, you have different programs. So your mom and baby groups, your mom and toddler groups. And I don't want to push those to the side because I think they're very important, but I want to make sure we talk about an area that you've been exploring that I am fascinated by. So let's talk about environmental health consulting. Yes. So what does <laughs> what does that mean and how did you end up in this niche? Yeah. Well, to from my perspective and the role that I'm doing to support families around environmental health, it's focused on indoor air quality and indoor health. Now, obviously as OTs, we're all familiar with the PEO model. And so when we talk about environment, we're usually talking physical environment. And when it comes to environmental health, we're more talking about microscopic or biological environment, which is a very different way to look at environment when we're used to looking at the layout of the room or where there might be area rugs or tripping hazards. Um, And so it really is looking at how do we make an optimally healthy environment for thriving? Um, But it goes for me much deeper than that. And this is where you ask, how did I end up um, focusing on environmental health? It happened to be right when I was opening up, I had resigned from my role at McMaster Children's Hospital. My baby was approaching a year old and I was all gung-ho to try this private practice thing. And then we found mold. We found mold in our basement and I thought, well, how do we, what do we do? And I was finding it so much like with sleep. I mean, the, the layers of trying to get information, the right information in an age where we have too much information and a lot of bad information was to figure out what to do to make our, make sure that our home was healthy and optimal for us. And just like with sleep, the the conflict of information was huge and it went from mold is not harmful to burn the house down. And I thought, well, how do I, as a mom navigate making choices, choices when those two extremes are the most commonly presented scenarios. Either leave, you know, leave it all behind, lock the door, don't even take your driver's license, or oh, it might cause some breathing issues, but we can, you know, you can clean it up and it'll be fine. And so right when I was starting my private practice was when I went on a huge learning curve to navigate what to do to make our environment safe. Um, and it it led to discovering that there was a whole area of environmental study looking at multi-system, multi-symptom chronic illness in those that had been exposed to um, toxic mold and, and unhealthy home environments. 
And so began my journey to find enough evidence to support our decisions as a family. And very quickly knowing that because that information was so hard to find, and because the advice was so contradictory and in many cases wrong, um, that I knew that part of my role was going to be in supporting families and making those decisions for themselves. Oh my goodness. This is, it's fascinating. It's also concerning. So concerning in that it was this challenging for you, right? It was, you know, again, we have a very well-educated woman who can disseminate research. And this isn't the case for all parents. And still having this many challenges with figuring out what to do, with figuring out what is the best approach, with feeling supported, with feeling confident in your decisions. It's one of those scenarios that, you know, we can really understand what's gotten us to this place and have appreciation for that now that we're here. But the challenges, the trials and tribulations that we have to go through to get there. Yes, yes. Well, and it, it highlights too how often we come to an area of practice that reflects the very challenges that we've had or the very conflicts or um, difficulties we've had, which brings a richness to it, just like with sleep, that empathy, um, you know, at times maybe over-involved and, and needing to navigate those boundaries. But certainly in terms of the work that I've done in environmental health, if someone has not gone through what we have gone through, they just don't understand. And, and most often their advice is pulled from conventional or outdated research that just simply doesn't reflect what we know about how indoor air quality can impact health um, and what lengths some people, when they're susceptible, must go through to, to regain health and to regain a healthy environment. So Heather, break down a little bit. How do you actually work with families? So if a family, you know, are you getting primarily word of mouth referrals? Are you doing a lot of marketing? So how are people finding you? And then once they find you, what type of services, how does it look to actually work with you? Most of the people that are coming to me, it's word of mouth. They've heard about our story and it may be the first time that they've actually had their concerns validated in hearing my story um, because their doctor may be dismissing it as you know, silly and non-existent. Um, the remediator might understand how to fix houses but doesn't understand how a house is only healthy if it's healthy enough for the inhabitants that are there. And so hearing my story and, and word of mouth has been primarily it and then referrals from past clients um, is the is the other layer, which I always take as a as one of the best signs that I'm I'm hitting on something that people need. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so people are finding you through different avenues, and then how does it look to actually work with you? So, do you do one-off sessions? Do you do packages? I do one-off sessions and packages. Um, I I find with environmental health, either people are coming to me with heightened um, anxiety around decision-making and feelings of overwhelm. So often it's one-off sessions to kind of peel them off the ceiling so that they can get, I always talk about getting their nervous systems down to a point where they can make wise decisions based on what they know and the information they have. Um, and then the other aspect of that is getting more into the um, building biology. So understanding that the buildings and homes that we live in are not static. They are like, 
living, breathing entities that have many factors that need to be in place to optimize health, from the materials we use to the air, fresh air that's coming in. Um, and so it's, it's really those two aspects that I'm putting together. And families sometimes need the peeling off the ceiling. And I value that role because we can't make decisions when we're really, really stressed out and highly anxious. And then to be able to dispel some of the terrible misinformation out there about cleaning up mold, remediating mold, what needs to happen to belongings, um, what kind of ventilation systems, although I'm not an, I'm not an HVAC expert, at least not yet. I am you know, looking at taking my building biology certification. But you know, what kind of setup for air ventilation or filtering air or air purifiers uh, may need to be in place to help improve things. And so that's more the biology, like the environmental piece, the biology of it. And then the other piece is looking more at that interpersonal and, and heightened anxiety around being able to make decisions, especially when so often their concerns have been dismissed. So they have nowhere else to go. Their doctors dismissed them. The remediator has said their house is fine and they still feel like there's something off. And so being able to support them that way is key. So yeah, it, sometimes it's by the hour. Um, families will often call me and, you know, when you're going through remediation, there's huge expenses with that just to take care of the physical environment. And so I think hourly often works for people because they can check in with me to kind of put things back into perspective so that they can go on to the next set of decisions they need to make. Can we back up for a moment and can you give people a better idea of what you mean by remediation? Mm. Yes. Yeah, so remediation is the process and it's a very particular process of removing mold from a home. Um, many people can understand that it kind of parallels the idea of removing asbestos. Um, there's particular steps that need to be taken to do it safely. The challenge, of course, is mold is not a, an inert thing, like it's a living entity. So the challenges of removing it properly are more complex. So with remediation, it's a multi-step process of first identifying why it's there in the first place. It's like having a leaky dike. If you don't fix the leak first, you may as well not mop up what's there. And once that's taken care of, it's looking at removing the damaged materials under um, containment so that you're not making what may be a relatively manageable problem bigger, and then doing what you need to do to take care of particulate in the air, removing it, cleaning the air, uh, wiping things down so that you're establishing as healthy a physical environment as possible. The OT profession never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> <laughs> the breadth of roles that we can take because of the way we think um, is just, to me, never it never ceases to be exciting. Oh my goodness. So true. And there are just so many ways to be showing up in the world. You know, there are so many different uh, avenues for exploring and just following our passion and, mm -hmm. you know, really, again, showing up differently. So do you know any other environmental health consultants who are occupational therapists? I do not, which is so, it's been such a journey for me as an OT and as a recovering conformist, you know, I, I look around, like, who can be my mentor? Who can I follow? You know, who whose footsteps can I follow? And I, as far as I know, there are no OTs working in the environmental health space. If there are, I would love to meet them. But I've had to seek out mentors in other industries to be able to support me, mm. many of whom are you know, uh, integrative health physicians through a society that I joined around environmental health, 
Um, I sought out a mentor who works on the building biology side of things, who's been working in the industry and in the field for decades, um, who himself very ill at one point. And so again, got into the niche because of personal experience. But it's not, I think for OTs, most of us are looking at the physical, like the visible environment and not looking at how health can be optimized by looking at what we can't see. So there you have it, folks. This is our challenge. We are a large international audience. Let's all work together and see if through our connections, we cannot find another environmental health consultant out there. So another OT who's doing this kind of work that we can do some matchmaking with for Heather. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could find someone for you? I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) So Heather, as we start to wrap this up, where can people find you? Because I know I'm already, my brain is racing. I'm like, oh, and I want to know this and I want to know that. Do you hang out on social media? And if so, where? And then do you have any websites that we can link in the show notes? On social media, on Facebook, and on Instagram, I'm heatherboyd.ot. I run a family sleep and development group on Facebook as well. Um, That's been lovely to nurture. Um, And then for my sleep and my infant and toddler development work, I can be found at heatherboyd.ca. And for those interested in exploring the environmental side of things, I'm at ahealthyhome.ca. Awesome. Heather, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for just lovely talking to somebody about sleep. You were bringing up all kinds of memories and frustrations and achievements. (laughs) Yeah, some good memories, some challenging ones. (laughs) Uh, Well, and just such a good reminder, you know, that camaraderie, that's what saved me. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so that was a good reminder, just connecting with other like-minded mamas. That really was what saved me. Um, But now opening up this whole new chapter in terms of environmental health and how OTs are practicing in that area. And again, you know, kudos to you for finding other mentors, but there's still extra energy, you know, in terms of expenditures at your end to still take what you're learning and bring it back to OT. So while it's extra challenging now, the good news is you're going to be an excellent mentor for OTs who are coming up through the you know, following in your footsteps. So I'm excited for them. But again, hopefully we can help you broaden that circle. I'm very excited to have that happen. Okay. All right. Take care, Heather, and we will chat to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the OT's Gone Rogue podcast, where we're all about making deeper connections by leaning into the difficult conversations. Make sure you're subscribed if you haven't already, because we've got some more awesome episodes coming your way. Take care, and we'll see you next week.